Welcome to the Everyday Mission Podcast, a place to resource you in your mission and ministry, enabling you to thrive so that the church might be transformed. We are your hosts, Joe Yair and Adam Sanders. Join us as we unpack different topics in conversation with each other and with special guests. Well, we've got a new episode today and uh, I'm here with Joe. Hello, Adam. Hi, Joe. And we've also got a special guest today. We're here with the Reverend Ian Howarth. Hi, Ian. Hi, Adam. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ian. It's really good to have um, you with us today, Ian. And uh, you are the chair of the Birmingham Methodist District. Indeed, yes. And uh, we're hopefully going to have a wide-ranging conversation today because um, Ian is coming to the end of his sort of active ministry, as it were, sitting down. I think is the That's technical what we term. Say, yes, in Methodism. Slightly, term. <laughs> slightly strange term, but perhaps we'll uh, we'll come to that a bit later later on. But maybe to um, to start off, we could go back to the beginning, Ian, and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your your life and um, perhaps when you when you first made a commitment and kind of came to faith in some way or whatever language you were put around that. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I mean I grew up in Amance. My father was a Methodist minister and. So faith was a natural part of life and church was the centre of life really at home all the way through my growing up. And I just took that for granted and it was faith I think was quite real to me even from an early age. Then when I was 11 I went away to school to a Methodist boarding school called Kingswood founded by John Wesley in 1748. And uh, I went there with great excitement and then hated it. Um, and discovered, I did discover that God wasn't just a place for home. And uh, we did the quaint thing really of, at the end of each day, we had to kneel at the end of our beds and say our prayers. <laughs> and actually I found that w- w- for a lot of people, it was just a joke, but for me, that was actually quite real. Mm. And uh, so there was a sense in which God had not deserted me when I found virtually everything else had. And so faith, did hold me in those days and then when I was about 17 uh, I was in a house with just two other boys as prefects Um, Steve one of the three one night he'd sort of disappeared in the evening and sort of reappeared with a great sort of glow on his face described to me a major spiritual experience he'd Mm. had Wow. Uh, by going, I think he'd been down to the school chapel, he'd been trying to work things through, and he really felt God had come real to him. And because he knew that I was a sort of affirming Christian, he said, pray with me, Ian. Mm. And I sort of went, ooh. <laughs> but <laughs> and, uh, somehow I was given the words to say, and we began praying every night wow. out of his experience. And actually the other person who, you know, as I say, relationships hadn't been that good, but he started joining us as well. Hmm. Relationships between the three of us improved no end. And we, we, we were sort of praying. I don't know whether we prayed every night for the probably six months um, that we stayed together in that house. But um, certainly we prayed regularly. I, I do locate that as a time where faith became different in, in, in another way. 
about that same time, I, I just realised this year that I preached my first sermon on the first Sunday of Lent, 1972, which is 50 years ago wow. this month. Gosh. Um, so faith was, was very much part of life. Mm. Um, That's so interesting that the, um, the, the, the catalyst for it coming alive for you was actually somebody inviting you to help them in their yes, faith. that's right, that's right. You know, yeah. that sort of, and, and I think that kind of, it's almost like a, when you engage in, in mission, your discipleship is stirred almost, you know, to put those sort of terms around it. Because often we think we kind of have to have it together and then we can help other people. Yes, yeah. But actually it was almost this thing stirring together, wasn't it, for you? That's right. And, and very much out of doing things together and... and, and being in a group and, and, and sharing faith and praying. Mm. Um, so you're three young men yeah, journeying together, yeah. start of your Christian faith, you're yeah, yeah. really feeling it in your heart. What happened then, Ian, after you left school? So when I left school, I had a gap year when I lived at home, but then I went off to university and um, joined the Methodist Society at University and the fellowship groups attached to that, which were ecumenical, they were called EFGs, they were ecumenical fellowship groups. And that group, well, the mixture of the teaching and the experience of the, uh, the Methodist church and the, and the speakers we had about relating church and faith to society. Remember we had Alan Beath, the MP, Methodist MP, came and spoke to us about mm. Methodism and politics. Um, we had, it was the time of, of anti-apartheid issues and, and at the university church, not at the Methodist Society, but we all trooped in the evening to the university church when they had a distinguished preacher. So Alan Payton, who was a leading uh, anti-apartheid activist, wrote a wonderful book called Cry the Beloved Country. I remember him uh, speaking at the university church, as well as some sort of quite radical theologians who, 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 from the university theology department who made us really think about our faith at, at great depth. Mm -hmm. So it was, a, it was a really exciting time and we would bring these things back into our fellowship group, mixing it with our personal life. So, so there was a, a tremendous sense that virtually everything, you know, personal life, politics, the music that I was studying, was, the, the, faith touched on everything. That, that was, what, mm. that was what, what I, I really, that was th that university experience and the relationships that we had, you know, some of which, and I'm talking nearly 50 years ago, quite a lot of those people I'm still in touch with. Wow. Were, most of them are either in ministry or our local preachers. So there were three levels. There was church, which was with, with people from outside the university and everything. There was the University Methodist Society, and then there was your small group. Mm. So there were those three levels. And I've always felt, and one of the challenges I think going on was, is that you, you need worship and a small group as a minimum to grow as a disciple. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a real challenge for us. So was it around then that you were starting to feel a, a pull, yeah, a calling? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I, I can really locate it into the, my second year of right. university. Uh, uh, coming to the end, it, uh, maybe I remember a conversation I had with someone. Where she said to me, you've made up your mind, haven't you? That's what you're going to do. And she, I said, yes. Mm. And actually the advice was, to, well, you can go straight from, you know, start candidating now. And, I, and I, it was me who said, look, I've been at a Methodist boarding school. I've been at a university where my life's been known by the Methodist Society. I actually need a bit mm. more experience. Mm. And so I went, um, I think, with more 
idealism than competence uh, to become a teacher in a, comp in a comprehensive school because I felt I needed to, to discover something more about life. I certainly discovered a lot about life. What they discovered from me, I don't know, but um, <laughs> I learned far more than I taught. So you, you then candidated, went to Theological College. Yeah. Um, and then your first appointment as a probationer first was... first appointment was in a local ecumenical project that worshipped in a school on the edge of Cardiff. Mm. Uh, and I just had one church, which I shared with an Anglican colleague. Gosh. Well, one, we haven't the resources to do it now, and two, it would never have passed the criteria that you have to have for a probation's appointment. I was basically... It was the first project in Wales to cross Anglican free church boundaries in an ecumenical project. And it was politically important rather than anything else. Mm. I mean, it, it did some good work. It was related to the school. We had a good ministry with, with, the, with the families connected with the school. Mm. But it was an Anglican ministry. And I was there just to, 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 to make up numbers, really. Right. I had very good support from my superintendent and chair, but I did feel... I, d I didn't have a congregation I could, that where I, in which I felt at home to, yeah. to minister within. It was very interesting. There was a very different model of ministry from the Anglicans, from what I wanted to offer. I, I, I was given the choice of where, we, where I wanted the manse to be. And I chose to have it as near the church as possible on the estate, e albeit on the private side of the estate. It was an estate cut in two between council and... and, and mm. That's something we often associate with Anglican churches, though, a sort of, you know, vicarage next to yeah, the church. Yeah, you see, and yeah. I wanted that. Whereas the, the Anglican colleague wanted to be up the hill and to, to have, be able to withdraw. Right. I remember, I, I remember seeing his... He talked about the Markan principle of withdrawal, which, I, which is Jesus withdrew to the hills to pray. It's one verse. I don't yeah. know, make it a principle, but there we are. Um, <laughs> and, um, but, but there was a model of ministry of the Anglican priest being a little bit above these people on the estate. And the, what I found, and I wanted to be part of mm. it, Yeah. what I found very frustrating was that a lot of the people in the congregation related much better to that Anglican model than to my model. Interest, that's so interesting, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, have that bit of distance. They wanted the distance, they wanted someone. And I, I, I feel this, my Anglican colleague used to preach impenetrable sermons. Um. And everyone thought, isn't he clever? Mm. <laughs> but didn't understand a word he said. And I didn't understand a word of it either. And, and you know, and, and I got a better theology degree than he had. But, it, 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 <laughs> but you know, it, but, I was, but I was actually inter trying, trying to interpret it, trying to yeah. set it Put out it in language, language they could understand, you know. But it, it, he was sort of venerated as, 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 as that sort of thing and, and mm. didn't really treat me as a colleague at all. And, and, and it, was, it was a really quite difficult time. It sounds like it formed you, though, in some way that because it, I think the deep commitment to that thing about being with the people almost yeah, it's very Methodist, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And I mean, it, it I, th be... I think I, I, to what extent I really articulated it myself at that time, I'm not quite sure, but I think there was a very clear about what my model of ministry was. I mean, and that goes mm. back to what I was brought up with, you know. To my, I mean, the first house I remember was in a city, Birmingham, which Dad had insisted the church bought so that it was near the church, yeah, rather than out in the suburbs, in Neatshills. The manse was in Erdington, and Dad insisted they move the, move the manse to Neatshills. 
Yeah, so your dad had modelled that to you. So that, so I think that 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 had been that was the model that I worked with. Yeah. So going forward, uh, then from that and then going forward, I, I mean, I took something that was perhaps a safe appointment after that, of two suburban churches, which in some ways was my probationers' appointment because that I and I, I needed to find my feet in quote unquote normal <laughs> normal Methodism. Yeah. We, we we had a very happy time there. We, we felt very well supported. Um, I think the reason I took it, we, we went and visited it with the expectation we would say no. Mm. And and some and one of the local preachers in that congregation, who, who was an eminent doc, an eminent um, doctor in, in the city hospital, um, said. We would want if you came here. We'd want you to leave a better minister than you came, than when you came, and we would want to support you to enable that to happen. And I thought this is a place I want to be. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. How did they invest in you at that point, then, Ian? What did they do to make you a better minister? I don't know. It was, I mean, simple things like uh, two ladies coming and saying. Uh, if you want to join a choir, knowing I sang, we'll babysit for you on a Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And they did that for all the seven years there. Joan, wow. It, Joan and Barbara babysat for us every Thursday night so I could sing in the That's choir. That's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> what a gift. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, so, so it, it's, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, allowing you to be Ian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and not Reverend um, yeah, Ian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the big sadness of that time was I, I inherited a youth group of 30 and after the first year the leader came to me and said we're going down the road to the pioneer people right the youth church there that's got 300 young people that's where our young people want to be mm-hmm. yeah and I hadn't been able I, I'm not sure what we could have done mm. I mean I, I think some of the older people who've been very kind to me were traditional and, mm. and weren't and I hadn't got to know them well enough to change it quickly enough. If it was but just it, but, the first year. But even yeah. if I had been able to, I think my theology wasn't in sync with the youth leader, yeah. who was more very much down the charismatic Pentecostal line, which I'm sympathetic to, but not wouldn't prioritise, if you like, mm. in the way they would. Yeah. And that was a different world. That was, you're talking about 1991, perhaps where that, that split between charismatic and not was, was greater in the life of the church. Right. I mean, that church now is on the verge of closure, and I think it, and I, and I think that to a degree, those young people going in 1991, mm. that's that was what, the next generation that, of leaders. That was the next generation of mm. leaders. I mean, they were great. I, I mean, I remember doing a Bible study on Revelation with them. You know, it was fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, it, and that's where, and that's perhaps where we could have, off, I could have offered something around the groups and whatever. Mm. But not the worship. We we couldn't do the worship. Yeah. Mm. So then you stayed in Surrey. So what happened was, is that our third child um, was born while we were there, which was very exciting. They never had a minister with children before, but didn't develop in um, the way that the other two had. And we realised that... uh, was something wrong and, and he was diagnosed with um, autism and severe learning difficulties when he was two and a half mm. and that then we had to think what does that mean 
Uh, we were very fortunate. Immediately got we got him into a specialist nursery, uh, and Surrey did have a sort of a track through for autistic mm. youngsters with two excellent right. autistic schools specialising in autism, one of which was just around the corner from where we were. So I went to my chair of district and said, really, my next appointment needs to be in Surrey as well. Hmm. And he sort of logged that and, and about a few months later came back to us and says, if you'll move a year early, there's one down, there's one in Leatherhead. And he says, I can't see one in the next two or three years after that that would be suitable. I think you need to look at this and move early. Right. So we went and looked at Leatherhead and were matched with it. But I have to say, I went there for the sake of Mark rather than because I felt it was the right place for ministry. Mm. Yeah. And I remember I, I, within the first few months, I, I, I remember sending something out to the house groups. I said, can you discuss what you want from a minister and let me and feed me back? Because I didn't know mm. what they wanted. I mm. couldn't, I didn't, they hadn't filled it because they'd, they'd virtually been told to have me. They hadn't filled in a profile in the, in the normal way of things. Mm. I wasn't quite sure what I was doing there other mm. than looking after my family. Mm. I, I remember the first Sunday we were there, we went, uh, the, the, the pews went right to the back of the church and there were two exits and you couldn't get from one exit to the other. And there were three because there was one at the front of the church where people went through if they were going for coffee. And I just didn't know where to stand. Right. And I went and stood at one and more than half the congregation went out the other. And you were the new minister. And I was the oh, new minister. Gosh. Yeah. And I thought, what, what, these what on earth have I come to? Yeah. So I got the back pews out by Christmas. Um, so, so I said, you know, I just need... Took the screwdriver and crowbar in yourself. <laughs> oh, almost. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember who did it, but we, we got them out so, so I could at least stand in, 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 in the middle at the back and, and greet and, and began to began to challenge them, really about what they were there for because if they, I said if you treat me like that they were appalled when I, when I, when I told that story back about, and I'd been there about I probably waited to be there about 18 months before I told them that story yeah. but, the, but the, they were appalled and, 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 and began to, to, to work at what church community was you know, How long were you there? I, and I was there 16 years 16 years yeah. long time for him at this point It was I, I had other I made other responsibilities I, I, my role changed every three years really Am I right in saying you lived, you know, the manse was next to the church? Manse was next door to the church, yeah. So that cropped up again there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bit of a thread there. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it raises all sorts of questions about what is an appropriate model of respiratory ministry in today's mm. world. I think some of my colleagues sort of almost accused me of becoming an Anglican because I was chair of the school governor's on the management group of the Community Youth Project and living next to the church. And I was really <laughs> embedded in that in that town. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure how many new people it brought into church, but it, it, the atmosphere of the church changed and opened. Their, their worship, did, we became far more flexible in our worship. Um, the, all the pews came out ultimately and... <laughs> The coffee, one. <laughs> and, and, and the coffee happened in the church because and that brought people together and mm. the, the, so so you know i think something 
although we, we were a community, I'm not sure it brought hundreds of new people in, but it, it sustained the life of the church. I mm-hmm. think it was clearly a church that belonged to the to the town, and people felt that both ways. Just tell me, Ian, as a as a dad with a son with a diagnosis of autism, obviously staying there for that yeah, length of time yeah. was extremely important, was important yeah. to you and yeah, your family. Yeah, Can you yeah. just just expand on that a little bit, just the effects of that on your family? I, I mean, I think that that stability was 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 really mm. important. I'm very grateful for the church. For Mark, I mean, it was the system. I mean, he did change schools when he was 16, and then we found his adult provision before we finally moved on. Right. So he's in adult provision in Surrey still. Um, and, and so that allowed that. In terms of his relationship um, with church, by the time he was 11, he couldn't cope with church mm. at all in any shape or form. For a while, we had one or two babysitters who would come in so the barber could go to church. But as he got into 12 or 13 and the babysitters got into their 70s, Mm. we didn't feel that was fair. And so Barbara didn't go to church for nearly five years. Um, So a big impact During Mark's teenage years. He would come in to church at the beginning, wander around, People would see him, and then Barbara would take him for a walk, and then he might appear again while we were having coffee afterwards. So Barbara had a, had a walk during church virtually every Sunday morning. Mm. Yeah. So he was part. People knew him, and he was part of it. But but he could, he couldn't cope with sitting still for a service or anything like that. How did it shape your faith and your ministry? I, I, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I did. I did quite a lot, and and it's it's quite interesting because I was working on a model of autism that I think now people would challenge. When I did, I did one sabbatical around autism about oh, 15 years ago. Right. Uh, and I, I want, I would want to challenge some of the new understandings of autism. Yeah. Because I think that the experiences of verbal autists have meant that the non-verbal autists or the barely verbal autists like Mark are not being heard. Mark cannot speak for himself. Some of the autistic community would say, as a parent of Mark, I can't speak for him. Only another autist can speak for him. Mm. I struggle with that. Mm. Yeah. And I'm open to to exploring, and I do hear the experiences of of verbal autists. Yes. But I'm not sure that they're the same. I think that you can learn Mm -hmm. about Mark's experience from their experiences. But Mark has severe learning difficulties, Mm. and that's... Hmm. And I think when I was writing, I thought that the the main autistic experience was in the non-verbal area. Hmm. And and the thinking now is that the main autistic experience and the main articulation of the autistic experience is amongst the, the verbal autist community. Hmm. Well, because they're able to verbalise yeah, things that's right. themselves. Yeah. And, and they have been ignored. And I have to say, I think some of their challenges are greater hmm. than for someone like Mark. For Mark... It's always been clear from the age of two and a half he had a diagnosis. Mm. It's always been clear he needs a special school. He could mm. never function in a, in a mainstream school. Yeah. It's always been clear he would need residential care. He would never be able to live independently. 
it's far more difficult when those questions will they live in will they be able to live independently will they mm. not you know and and, yes. and, and, and and I think parents who've got youngsters like that have in a sense more difficult um, challenges than we have with Mark mm. how did that impact your faith Ministry. How did that impact my faith? That that was that was quite hard, and I think I did tend to live. <sighs> I, I I tended to compartmentalise almost too much. Hmm. There was faith life and there was home life, and sometimes they were they, they, I was struggling to integrate that. Right. Uh, I, I I was having to come to terms with um, quite a lot that was crucial to me in faith were the areas marked in which Mark struggled. Mm. Uh, I mean, even some of the uh, this definitions of what is what it is to be a person. Mm. You, I would read stuff, a definition of what, you know, a personhood in God, mm. ability to make relationships, mm. ability to empathise, wow. you, you, you know, uh, ability to communicate. You know, which mm, are the which uh, again? That's been challenged. But when I was writing, those were deemed to be the three key impairments of of of, of, of autism and so, with severe learning difficulties. Yeah, communication, empathy, and social engagement, relationship. Mm. So that that vision that you had for integrated life of discipleship throughout was that being challenged? Do you uh, think, or the well, I think I think it, I think it was made. I, I think I then needed to. I mean, what I found my doing was challenging some of the perceptions of what it is to be human. You know, some some mm. of some of some of the the theological perceptions of what personhood is. Whereas I, I would talk a lot about relationship with God. Mm. I still would want to, in my own sense, but I think I, it made me realise that um, the value of a person is in God's relationship with is in God's love for them. That's the prime thing, and the response. Is it's good, but it's secondary. So is it that thing in the baptism service where you baptise yeah. first and then That's you right. make the promises? A- absolutely, absolutely. Which is very Methodist. So coming into the role, what hopes um, did you have that you wanted to to see happen or fulfil? And looking back, have you? Yeah. Have you managed to do those? Have you seen them come to fruition? Uh, when I came uh, and in the application was very much around um, the, 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 the then connectional mission policy, which was based on the phrase of discipleship movement, shape for mission, mm. which I know some people found very difficult. I still have a feel there's value in that and a bit sad that we don't revisit it. Um, I, and I, I did. I remember I did my presentation in, in looking for the role on around a, what it meant to be a discipleship movement shape for mission. Mm. Tried to find it before I came out. Couldn't find it. It's not. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't find it on the computer. See exactly what I said. <laughs> um, but I think that business of, of, of helping the church reshape, yeah, so it can be more missional and and. And also, and I do think these things have to hang together, can be a community where people, where its current members can grow as disciples. Mm. 
uh, I, I do think those things have to hang together and I hope I hope I've tried to um, articulate that through my time as chair mm. um, and um, so so it was looking to see how it should help the church do that um, knowing that given the current situation given our numbers given our resources mm. a reshaping is in- inevitable yeah but not just inevitable but is necessary for for us to be to serve the present age better yeah were you seeing the reshaping primarily in terms of reordering circuits then because that was the push i guess at the time was it it may have been I'm, i've never been a great fan of, of that for its own sake uh, i um and I think some that that was what was the phrase reshaping for mission. Yeah, I felt we were reshaping for administrative convenience and 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 and, and administrative necessity. Mm, yeah. um, but not. And I think the evidence when they they've actually done some review, haven't yeah. they? And I'm not sure that there was any evidence that reshaping by itself particularly helps mission. Um, mm. So it, I wasn't thinking in that, that term. I was thinking in terms of the the whole ethos of the church needing to change okay and i think i I would still say that and i suppose looking back over not just the time as chair but my whole ministry i think when i knew when i when i you know even when i candidated certainly when i left college i knew the church was going to be smaller when i retired than when i began perhaps not as much smaller as it is but but I knew that was the case mm. the demographic was clear what I had hoped for was that it would be say leaner and fitter yeah and that if you liked the the, the people holding it back would fritter away and you'd be left with your core enthusiastic group so I'm not sure that we have been left with the with the core keen group right as um and in, in, to a degree, some people who stay are the people who, who stay because they want things to stay the same and they're comfortable with that as it is and they don't want it yeah. to change. And it's to me, it's not so much about structures as, as about outlook. Yeah. Um, which is being a, a greater awareness of how the church as a community is seen and presents itself to the world outside and mm-hmm. how people uh, the, the classic thing you know the story is what what would i feel going to a betting shop i wouldn't know where to put myself or what to do yeah because i've never been inside one that's the way most people feel about church <laughs> yes it's true <laughs> and i suppose that's still working on a model of people coming through the door and i'm not sure that we're, again we're probably past that model mm. But but an awareness of where we can engage with people and the ability to engage with people about things that matter, mm. and uh, uh, and what worries me is that an awful lot of what matters to people within church doesn't matter to anybody outside its doors because yeah. it's to do with the institution. Yeah. So I suppose so that reshaping it, it is to try and encourage people to to, to deal with what matters, which uh, and and. To some degree, I think that has to be the priority, and then the the nature of the institution grows out of that, rather than the other way around. 
Mm. Keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping the main thing the main thing. I, I, I remember in 1995, the Young People of the Methodist Church produced a charter called Charter 95. And the, it went to conference and it it did set up some working groups to do things. They, they came with that proposal. It was a very wide-ranging document. But the first sentence of that document was, we long for a church where God is at the centre. Mm. And I think that still drives me. Mm. And I suppose in coming into the chair, it was to what extent can I hold that with all the institutional stuff that goes with the role. Mm. Yeah. Ian, you know Adam and I are all about um, developing mission within our churches and helping congregations. And obviously there's going to be a lot of other people, hopefully listening to this, who have a similar role or passion to, to Adam and I. What advice, with all of your wisdom and experience would you give to people like Adam and I and others that are working to enable churches to flourish and connect with people who don't know God yet what can you tell us that that would really be useful in our roles and our ministry I don't know I mean I suppose I go back to that thing about what really matters Mm -hmm. and, and to what extent if I go back to what I was talking about earlier about my time at university where faith came alive for me because it touched on everything that mattered in my life. Politics, mm. personal life, music. And to what extent are we reflecting in our life of our church what matters to people and helping them to relate that to God? Because mm. I think if you've got people doing that in their churches, and that's the, the priority then that will communicate. Yeah. So it's, dis- it's discipleship. So it's discipleship. Yeah. And, and mission has to, throw, has to flow from discipleship. And, to, and to, mm. to graph mission policies onto where there isn't discipleship... Yeah. It's going to fall short. You're like a branch that isn't rooted to the tree. Yeah. Give us a couple of highlights, Ian, as your time as ditch- district chair. How about as district chair... Um, I think the, 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 I'm reflecting because it's the day after my last Presbyteral Synod that one of the I know this is really a ministerial response but, but one of the highlights is to chair the Presbyteral Synod and to um, lead communion and give communion to all, to, to, to all my colleagues Tell me why I think that that says something. I mean, I absolutely. This is in the context of absolutely committed to, minute, to leadership being a partnership of lay and ordain. Mm. But there is something very special for me about being an ordained presbyter in the Methodist Church. Yeah. There's a. I mean, the fact. Yes, I'm following my father's footsteps. There's something of that, and and, and that sense of colleagueship ha- has been really important to me over the years. Mm. and I can name you know people when I've gone through the rough times there's always been people and again it's been a mixture of lay and ordain but I can sort of label ordained people who've been key people through my life 
So that business of having the responsibility for the ministers in the district and the the, the symbolism of the Presbyteral Synod of mm. presiding the communion for them is really important. And, and, and yesterday was one of the perhaps one of the most emotional things I've, I've mm. done probably in the whole of my ministries. That you know, presiding yeah. my last one. Yeah. And now I won't do it again. So so that that's that's been very spe- that's very special. Yeah. Uh, it's Christian community. Though, it is Christian it? community, which has been at the root of who I am. Yeah. And one of the challenges, you know, as I look, we might talk about that later, but, you know, as I look to retirement, what what will be the nature of Christian community? Because to a degree, I've always had it there for me. Yes. Um, so so, so that, that's been the heart. I mean, I do think the district service during that for all its challenges... <laughs> Yeah. The district service through the lockdown was 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 was, was um, you know uh, uh, something very special that, that we managed to do that and and do it again with, as a team. Yeah. So it's, it's it's where team has worked as often as not is is is, is where that's mm. is where where, where um, Christian community where Christian community mm. is important, and so so other, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think the reimagined days have have been. You know, exciting, uh, and and really, the, the advantage of the district is that you you perhaps the the colleague you people who are in district office are people with a particular commitment, and mm-hmm. and, and, and you're not necessarily having the the day to day routine of church life. There's also perhaps a, a, a wider dimension, so that that's been. Um, been good to be able to think in that strategic way and wide dimension have i still think of myself as a as a church minister yeah not not as a a, a wider wider figure yeah so that's really interesting yeah it's a very relational role isn't it that the well that's the way I, I, yeah i can't do yeah. it any other way that, that's the way the way it works for me yeah yeah and i wonder whether you know you were talking about where the methodist church is at and that I wonder whether the the bit that is missing is that sense of team is not that doesn't describe it enough because it's about this shared mission for the gospel that it, it, a group of people are engaging in together. Do you see what I mean? And I think it is. I, 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 I and there's t- lots of talk about team ministry, and I'm not quite sure. Again, I think it's done as sort of an institutional thing rather than coming out of. Oh yeah, a clear I was relational thing. The team of the, the just the congregation, yeah, the people. That's right. Doing, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. being on mission together for the yeah, sake of the gospel yeah. and journeying together and being in community with each other. Absolutely, and 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 and, and there's, there's, I think there are challenges as we're more thinly spread as presbyters. The model of ministry, which is me, me, that that has, has fed me, and I hope through me has fed others, which is, is to be embedded in community. Yeah. And if it's a, a, and I'm I'm concerned that as we're stretched thinner, there's a model developing of almost floating above community. Uh, Yes, you enable, I mean, I hear, well, our job is to enable lay people to do, I'm absolutely signed up for that. But I think you do that by being alongside them, not being Mm. separate out. Yeah. If you had something, a word of encouragement or guidance that you wanted to leave with your colleagues in leadership, whether lay or ordained, um, voluntary or employed, 
whether they were in a circuit role or in a local church, what would you say to them as they're kind of grappling and trying to balance these changes that that need to be made? And have you got any advice? I, I, or? I think I think it is about building community. Building mm. communities, we, we call, I mean, technically called communities of practice. I'm not sure that's actually... <laughs> I think it, it's deeper than that. Mm. Yeah. And it goes back to the small group stuff. You know, it, it's yeah. actually having the places and spaces where you can relate at depth and where God is at the centre of the conversation. Mm. And I think if we do that, we can find the encouragement to deal with the rubbish that we sometimes have to cope with. Mm. I've developed something when I talk to ministers, which I call pastoral, which is the concept of what I call pastoral capital. Mm. I think I've talked to Adam about it before. Oh, tell me more. So what, what I would say is if you build in ministry, any form of ministry, if you build a set of relationships where there is trust and a sense that people are ca- that you care for people, mm. you can almost get away with murder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You build because you build up that part. Well, that's what I call pastoral capital. You invest yeah. in the relationship, and then you can spend that in doing difficult, challenging stuff because yeah. people will come with you or people will respect you even if they disagree with you. Mm. Yeah, you're so right. It's building up the emotional piggy bank, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I wonder whether there is, if we could pin that right down to a very clear practice. I've sometimes thought for myself when thinking back over my sort of lay ministry, if you like, I've sometimes regretted not initiating the faith conversation, if that makes any sense. So to, to actually think in every place where I'm going to go in every conversation I have how can I be the one who invites yeah. the faith conversation yeah. not just the <laughs> whatever other conversation it is the mm. you know the planning conversation the even the you know the relationship conversation just the how are you stuff yeah. but yeah. how can I initiate yeah. the faith conversation mm. um, and I think it's, and it's not something I think I've done as well as I would like over my ministry I, I, I'm very happy when other people initiate it that, that to respond mm. um i think that's partly why i think groups are so important i find it actually perhaps easier to initiate faith conversations in groups than i do in a one-to-one mm. um i'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing but that's just actually my that that's that, that's my experience mm. why uh, is that do you think i think there's there's something of a fear of rejection that in a one-to-one situation if you say the wrong thing you can mess it up in a group yeah. there's someone else to yes mediate bounce it, off yeah yeah how do you feel about lay workers in that sense that are working outside of the church and having those conversations with people about god and having to go in cold quite often they haven't got that comfort I know, blanket I, know. I mean I, I respect and admire that that they could you know they can do that and and, and do that really well i, I was talking mm. to our new um youth um 
in, in the God, the God for All team, the, the, the youth evangelist, I'm not sure what his title is. Yeah. And, and, the, and he was telling me uh, he's come into the role because he used to work as a community worker for Manchester United. Right. And he actually, in talking to the young people, he had lots of faith-based conversations with the young people he was doing as a youth worker, a community worker for Manchester United. Yeah. And he said, it's not fair that Manchester United to pay me to do this because that's not what I'm actually paid to do. <laughs> and so he needed to find a job within a Christian mm. organisation to do it. Gosh, sounds like so he's, he's got, in the he's right got place. that gift to be able to <laughs> yeah. bring out the, the spirit. And, and I'm not sure that's my gift, but, but that, that what I respect and not yeah. admire people who can do that. You said right at the beginning of this podcast that you had um, a call from a very young age, that you had a definite path yeah, that you were, yeah, God was asking yeah, you to follow. Yeah. What's God saying to you now, Ian, now that you're preparing to sit down? Are you hearing anything from God about your next min- phase in your ministry? No, it's, really, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. I've done quite a lot of reflection on this at the moment and, and, and quite... I, when we uh, a, a probationer minister uh, at Synod yesterday, we asked the two people who are going for ordination in the summer, are you as convinced of your call now as when you first heard it? Mm. And they answer yes. Now I could answer that yes now. Yeah. Mm. Which is you know with enthusiasm I'd still say I'm just as convinced of my call now as I was when I yeah. went to presented the Presbyteral Synod in 1982 as a candidate. Um, but the challenge is that I've always seen that that call has always been exercised as part of the institution with a clear role. Mm. I've now got to work out how I exercise that call when there isn't a clear role. Yes. To what extent it is within the institution, what extent it might be outside. Yeah. So I, I, I find it's really exciting but a bit scary, mm-hmm. and and there is and there is genuinely an open book at the moment. But but there is a commitment to trying to work out what that is. I, I'm not going to walk a well. It might, as I say, to what extent it's within the church as it stands, or or yeah. in, in the wider community, or whatever. Mm. Uh, and I think the advice my spiritual director gives me is is sort of sit and sleep for six months, really, and, and see what God's saying. Um, and and he, he assures me God will say something. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Great. That's been yeah. so... Well, God, thank <laughs> you. <Yeah>. So fascinating <laughs> yeah. and so much there to to kind of take away and ponder on. Mm, and definitely. help in shaping, I suppose, the next generation of leaders, really, in the Methodist Church. Well, yeah. we'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank yeah. you for your thank time. You. Cheers. Enjoyed that. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. Do subscribe to the feed to get the latest episodes. And please get in touch if you have a question, topic or suggestion. We would love to hear from you.